Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm with Terry Fakes this week, and we are back in our normal habitat after a couple of weeks on the podcast, at least, a week for us in the high mountains. You can probably hear the oxygen levels uh, where we are now that are a little bit better than where we were then. That is true, but I miss the temperatures greatly. Yes, definitely. On a, on a 100-degree day like this, we miss the the temperatures there. And, you know, coming off of those conversations, and we've gotten a ton of great feedback, and thanks for you guys that listen and send in questions and feedback. Um, I think hitting hitting a few issues on the horizon is really important. And so in both of those conversations, trying to look ahead, look at the culture, look at some pressing issues, this podcast really is a fusion of two things, that kind of conversation and the kind of conversation we're going to have today, which is an overview of a biblical book. And one of the things we're really trying to do at So We Speak is bridge the quiet time and the Twitter timeline. So we want to know how do you go from reading the Bible to actually living it out in your everyday life? And so how do you bridge the gap between a book like Titus and issues of identity or selfhood or holiness that we talked about last time? And so you, we need to have both conversations going together and, and enmeshed together uh, in order to live the life that we've been called to live. And so... Most of our conversations now are when one of those two buckets, and I think that's right. intentional um, to try to further the aim of being transformed, um, being informed without being conformed, trying to speak truth into what the world is actually talking about right now. So we have a, a particularly good book for that purpose that we're going to go through today, and that's the letter to Titus. Now, this is a great one because it's only two pages long. You can really go in depth on this. It takes about a minute and a half to read the whole thing. And it's considered one of the pastoral letters in the New Testament. So what do we mean when we say that and, and why are they called that? Well, the letters to Timothy and to Titus have a very pastoral tone. They are younger pastors who have been mentored and trained by Paul. Who have worked with him there. And by the way, there are many other young men like this. And I know you'll get into that in a little bit, but these letters are preserved for us to see how he is exhorting them, encouraging them, um, assigning them work to do. And so it's really one pastor talking to another pastor, trying to encourage and exhort and give them advice, give them instructions. And that's why it's called a pastoral letter. You know, it's a pretty unique um, focus in the New Testament. We see Paul's letters to churches, which are typically addressed to either the whole church or to the elders of the church. But these letters are the ones that we see him writing to an individual. And he does that also in Philemon. But in this case, it's not to exhort Philemon, as we talked about on our overview there, to do something different. It's to exhort them in their pastoral ministry that they're undertaking. And so these have really taken on a broad pastoral feel because these are little manuals for ministry. Now, the interesting thing about them is if you look at a book that's marketed as a manual for ministry today, and these little manuals of ministry in the first century, there's parts of them that seem kind of un incomplete. And one of the reasons for that is the church just isn't really that developed at this point. There's not as much infrastructure as you'll deal with today. And there's not as much inertia in these churches. They're still on the first generation of Christian people or the early second generation of, of kids who have grown up in Christian families. 
And one of the things that we have to be careful about is knowing where the line of wisdom is in a book like First and Second Timothy or, or Titus to apply the principles that he's saying, uh, put these into practice to modern contexts. So I've often wondered, you know, what kind of pastor today would Timothy be or what kind of pastor today would Titus be? Who would be a good um, equivalent for these people? And I think as you read these letters, Timothy and Titus have very different personalities. That's one of the things that you notice. Um, you can see a little bit in the Acts narrative, but mostly here where Paul's speaking specifically to them. How would you characterize each of these young pastors just in terms of what they're like from reading these letters? A great question. Um, this is just my impression, but I have a, a feeling of the Acts narrative. Timothy's pretty young when he begins to go along with Paul. Titus, I don't know as much about his uh, age at that time. But I have a sense that Titus is a little older, has seen a little more life. And I just infer that, again, this is an opinion. I infer that from the kinds of things Paul is saying to Timothy and the kinds of things to Titus. Mm -hmm. We know that Titus... Uh, earlier than this, or a little before this letter was written, that in the letter to this, the second letter to the Corinthians, Titus has been entrusted with some big jobs by Paul. Mm -hmm. Not to say Timothy wasn't entrusted with ministry, but Titus, you really get the impression that he is really standing in for Paul and doing some big things. The other thing is that in the text of this, he is jointly talking to Titus about problems with false teachers and mm -hmm. appoint these elders and don't be shy about uh, teaching sound doctrine. I, again, this is going to sound a little subjective, and it is, but I get the sense that Titus is maybe a little more experienced than Timothy. What do you think? It certainly has that feel to it, because one of the things you notice in especially 2 Timothy is that Paul is constantly assuring Timothy to be strong and to be bold. And uh, he speaks to him as personally as you see him speak to anyone in the New Testament. And we know from the Acts narrative that he picks him up when he's probably a teenager. And right. they travel together, and he doesn't have a uh, father. Paul becomes a spiritual father to him. Titus, he also says in verse 4, my true child in a common faith. But the jobs that he gives him and the way that he talks to him, you can tell he's just a different kind of guy. He may be a yeah. little bit more of a uh, assertive leader. I think that's probably a reasonable assumption. And like you said, he may be a little bit older and more experienced. Uh, and I bring that up to basically say, when you're studying this letter, it's important to realize that even though it's a Bible book now, it's a, uh, you know, and they t that takes on a certain generic feel, these are specific letters to specific people that reflect their specific qualities and their relationship with Paul. And um, we can learn a lot about pastoring and leading, and this can apply to anything from doing a small group or sitting down one-on-one -on -one to leading a big church from the way that Paul instructs them about how to conduct their ministry. Right. And uh, while we can't know everything, there's certain little clues about, you know, a guy like Titus, maybe there's a reason that Paul says this or that, or maybe a guy like Timothy, right. maybe there's a reason that he gives a lot more encouragement in that letter um, to him. And it's a good, it's a good thing for us to take note of. To mm -hmm. continue that topic a little bit, I think the backdrop of these pastorals is really interesting in, in the way that Paul went about doing ministry. So 
sometimes we think that Paul kind of just flew out of the seat of his pants. He went from one town to the other. He preached the gospel. He never had any plans. He never had any strategies. But these letters really prove that to be an inadequate understanding of what Paul was doing. In fact, Paul had a very sophisticated way of raising up and training leaders and deploying them into certain ministry tasks. And uh, the only time we actually see anything of Titus in the New Testament outside of this letter, we see him on these missions that Paul has given him. So I'll give a brief summary and then let you go into a little bit more depth on this. But Paul seemed to like taking people along with him on his on his journeys. And they heard his teaching, as he says in, in 2 Timothy, you've seen my way of life. You've seen me in my best moments and my worst moments. You've heard me preach. You know my doctrine. And then once that's been established, he begins to send them out on short-term missions. Jesus actually did this too when he sends out the 12 and then he sends out the 72. And they come back and they do some more ministry together. Maybe they stay in a certain place for a while and then Paul sends them out again. And by the time you get to first and second Timothy and to Titus, Paul has sent them out on a longer term mission where they really are the senior leader in that context. But it's come after, you know, anywhere from maybe a decade of ministry leadership with Paul sent out by Paul in the network of Paul's churches that he's overseeing. Yeah, I, Completely agree with that. That is a, it's a very uh, rabbinic way of doing things. We would call it an apprenticeship more than a training class, but it's, you know, watch me, do it with me, and then bit by bit, go do it on your own. Uh, whether we'd call that, you know, discipling in a first century sense, or we'd call it an apprenticeship, that's the model that he uses. But you do see that, Cole, if you put together a few of these little detective clues, about Titus, we see him in 2 Corinthians 8. So Paul's been to Corinth, uh, written back the first letter. Paul's off doing ministry. He's written back the second letter. He is, one of the things he's doing in chapter 8 of that second letter to the Corinthians is telling them that uh, it's time to come and get the contributions that they've been making to send to Christians in need. And he's sending Titus to do that. And so Titus and a few of the other brothers are coming to do that. So you see Titus, first of all, as we see him, is on some specific missions. Then you see in this letter that apparently he and Paul had been ministering on the island of Crete together and that Paul had moved on and left Titus to finish the work of setting up the churches and evangelizing and teaching and getting the church going. And then finally, a little bit later, a few years later, we see a reference to Titus in 2 Timothy, where Paul is saying that he has sent Titus to Dalmatia. And that sounds like Titus is now full-fledged, has his own territory, is his own missionary. And so I think it's kind of interesting. And again, there's a little conjecture here, but what we see chronologically is the development that you just said. He's, he's sent on some specific missions. He's left to finish setting up the churches. And then the last thing we hear of him at the end of Paul's life is he's out doing what Paul did on his own. Right. And th this is one of the things I think is an insight into Titus's personality and character is that Paul entrusts him with at least a big part of the offering that he's been collecting and taking that back, you know, hundreds of miles to Jerusalem. That's right. 
that is uh, not an easy job. And it would be something that you would have to have a person that you trusted a lot. And in those days, somebody who was capable of defending themselves and uh, the money that they were taking all the way from Corinth and across uh, Asia down into where he would deliver the money in Jerusalem. So I think this is uh, another good insight that he's ramping up responsibilities. Paul's selecting things for him to do. He is proving himself faithful. And then he is, um, at this point, basically a leader of elders. And so we see at the beginning of this book, the purpose of writing, or at least the initial purpose of writing, is in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So let's move into the letter then. If this is the purpose of the letter is to exhort Titus to put things in order and to appoint elders in all the towns, this is a pretty big job. And Paul has some very specific things to say about how to do this and the qualities of a person who would be doing this. And I think that's probably one of the most interesting aspects of this letter is Paul is not just logistical. He really wants Titus to know that it takes a certain kind of person to do these jobs well. And so maybe that's the first theme that appears in this letter is in the opening. It says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. This is a, this is a really interesting way to phrase this. It's a really interesting combo but it runs through the entire letter of Titus. So where do we see this theme developed in the letter? Truth according with godliness. You know, that's interesting because I think it's a topic. So for example, with the elders a little bit uh, down in chapter one, here are some of the words that are used about the elders or overseers that he's to appoint is that they are above reproach. They're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The children are believers. They, uh, as God's steward, they can't be arrogant or quick-tempered. They can't be a drunkard or violent. They can't be greedy. They have to be hospitable, self-controlled, holy, disciplined. They must hold firm to the trustworthy word as it was taught so that they can give instruction in sound, healthy doctrine. So you, you really see quite a list here, and those that list is the reflection of the truth in them. It is the outward sign of what we would call godly behavior, godly capabilities. So you, you see that in the elders, but as you move on, you, you also see it when he, in chapter 2, he moves on from the elders, and he says, but as for you, Titus, you teach what accords with sound doctrine also teach the older men to be sober-minded and dignified and self-controlled. Once again, we're seeing godliness coming out of people's faith. And he goes on to the older women, younger men, younger women. So I think in all the things that Titus is doing, this idea of make sure people know that the gospel results in godliness is a thread that runs through this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an important point to hit, not just because it's something that Titus exhibits, but it's the way that he's supposed to set up these churches to run, is these don't just run on uh, great credentialed leaders, they they run on that tradition of godliness. That you we, we talked about this two episodes ago, when it comes to holiness, you have 
good doctrine and you have holiness. And it's easy to fall into the error of exalting one and minimizing the other, that either this person has great doctrine, but they're a total jerk, or this person's doctrine is not very good, but they really are kind to people. And so we can overlook that. That is not a category difference that Paul's willing to make in his letters. No, we need good doctrine that accords with good character. We know that those things are, are actually mutually intertwined. And uh, Titus is not just supposed to exhibit that. He's supposed to find people that understand that and put them in charge and set up a church in such a way that both of those things are going at the same time. You cannot afford to focus on one to the detriment of the other. You know, and then one other observation I'll make that I think is applicable to us, and I want to hit this lightly because I realize that in the 21st century America, there are certain logistical aspects of ministry, just like in first century, you know, Crete, there were certain aspects of ministry. But you notice that the core of what Paul wants to tell him, and maybe he told him these things at another time, but the core is not tactical. It's not like, okay, make sure your house churches have no more than 15 people and make sure they're visiting at this time. And here's what you do with daycare. And I don't think I'm, I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm just saying, notice what's not here. Not a lot of tactical ministry. What you see here is the heart of ministry. And that is your, your number one job is to see that the gospel takes root and flowers into godliness. You know who in modern times, I think, really, I see this exact idea, and I'm sure it came from here, is Eugene Peterson. When you read, for example, the contemplative pastor, he talks about the functions of a pastor, and none of them are logistical. He thinks about the idea of religious work, which would be forming small groups and doing programs, and neither he nor I think those are bad things. But he really is careful to say, don't lose sight of the essence. And I would say that if Paul were here, he would be happy with a lot of the things that we're doing, the small groups mm -hmm. and the live streaming. And I think he'd be happy with that, but I think he would say these same words to us. Never lose sight that this is what your pastoral job is. Right. And this is the brilliance of these pastoral epistles is there are timeless principles and wisdom that can be applied to some really different contexts in ministry, mm -hmm. both then and now. So he, he goes through and he says, this is the purpose. And in order to do that, you're going to need to be able to identify godly people who fit the criterion for leadership. And this is one of the two places that we get an explicit list of qualities for uh, the office of elder overseer. And this is something that's not quite as um, cut and dried as sometimes we make it out to be because one of the things you were mentioning earlier is the language here is kind of interesting in terms of this leadership role. Yes, thanks for clarifying that. I, I agree. This is one of two places in the New Testament, you and I were talking about this earlier, where those two Greek words, one elder, one, uh, it's translated overseer or bishop, and that you see them being used interchangeably. So we tend to think of the office of an elder as a position in the church that is a shepherding leading role. And obviously you just, we just read some of the qualifications and the duties, but there are some denominations that understand overseer. They use overseer or Bishop instead of that. And I just think it's interesting to note that there's only appears to me only one functional role, whatever you wish to call it. And that the function of that is less administrative and it's less authoritative 
than it is uh, exemplary. And right. Character. This is important to, to point out because it does shape the way that certain denominations have their leadership structure, even down to the name. So, for example, here in Titus 1, we have the Greek word presbyteros, which is typically how we would translate in, into the word elder. And uh, you can tell that that's where we get the word Presbyterian from is that's the right. same. It's, a, it's an English version of that same Greek word. And on the other hand, in 1 Timothy 3, for example, you get qualities for episkopos, which is an overseer or a bishop. And you can tell that that's where we get the word episcopalian from, is this is a kind of leadership structure where you have certain levels of leadership over elders. You have bishops in certain formats and certain places. You don't have any overarching structure. Um, some, some of the charismatic churches do this same structure, but instead of calling them bishops and elders, they maybe sometimes call them apostles. They take the gift of apostleship as what Paul was doing in a leadership capacity. And some people believe that the apostolic gift is gone today. So it, it, this is part of the explanation why you have disagreement in these different denominations over how the hierarchy of leadership should be working. Some of it is because there is a little bit of ambiguity here as to whether these are two distinct roles or one role. And if you just compare the lists between 1 Timothy and Titus and Acts chapter 20, where Paul addresses the Ephesian elders, it seems like these two terms are used pretty interchangeably. Right. I think what we're getting at here is that the early church needed some believers who were mature in their faith, and that maturity expressed itself in the godly nature of their behavior, and that these were the people who should be shepherding the flock. It wasn't who's the best administrator, although there were gifts of administration. You know, who is the richest, even though that can also be used for God's glory. It, it's interesting to me the qualifications that are not set for the elders is that this idea of the gospel has taken root in their lives, and you can discern that by godliness. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, all the other gifts have room in the church. I'm not knocking that at all. I just think uh, we, we need to be careful that however we organize our denominations, our churches, we don't lose sight of the heart of this. Yeah, this is a really interesting point because in the qualifications for elders and overseers, there's there's actually only one uh, qualification that he gives that is an action in the sense of kind of uh, a role that the office might play, and that is able to teach for elders. Every other quality on this list is a character quality. So what what kind of character does this person have? And, and the same thing is basically true with, with deacons as well. The list is a little bit different in 1 Timothy, but we're focusing on the character and the holiness and the disposition of someone, the maturity of someone to fulfill these roles. It's actually less about gifting and less about action, um, although there are some prescribed actions that go with these roles than it is, can you find people who exhibit this level of holiness in their life? Exactly. I, I think that's the key point. And then to move on from there, though, uh, while they are exemplars, in other words, they are to be the shepherds of that, in chapter two, you really see him addressing the older men, older women, younger men, younger women. And, uh, you know, for the older, I'll speak to the older men and women a little bit. This always convicts me 
not in the guilt-inducing, convicting kind of way, but kind of the, hey, this is a reminder, Terry, as an older man in the church, God calls you to be sober-minded, which means to be serious, not silly, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, uh, sound in love, and steadfast. Leverage your experience to not go up and down so much with circumstances. And I, I find that to be the challenge to me in my stage of life. And then Older women, likewise, be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Teach what is good. Train the young women to love their husband and children. Be self-controlled, pure, kind, submissive, et cetera, et cetera. And I think uh, people, Christians in my generation, this is written to us. It's spoken to us. Yeah, it, it puts an emphasis on what I think is the, the greatest vehicle of change and the greatest vehicle to holiness, which is relationships that are both um, horizontal and vertical in a sense, that we need some intergenerational relationships. You need to have people that you look up to that have a long track record of, um, you know, whether it's in their marriage or their parenting or their personal ministry, and then you need to have people that you're peers with. And everybody needs to look for people, too, that are younger than they are to pour into and Right. The thing that I always am, uh, the thing that always pops out to me about this passage is what he says about the young men. And I think this is such a perfect message um, for young men specifically. Everybody else in this passage has multiple things that they're supposed to be doing, these long lists of things that they're supposed to be teaching and learning. And then it says in verse six, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's it. Just one thing. Just master Not a big that. Span there for the young men. <laughs> just you know, I, I, it really is a great reminder to me. You know what, young men, let's just let's just conquer this hill first, and then we can go on to the other stuff. Because if you get you know, that, let's just start with the first thing. Yeah, it's really a good foundation. Teach the younger men to be self-controlled, and uh, that is the makings for a life of godliness is learning as a young man to be self-controlled. And of course you have these other lists, but that always just sticks out to me as, as something that's a real easy application from this passage. You know, this is, uh, I'll get back to Christianity for a minute, but as you read leadership books from Navy SEALs and, you know, there's a fad right now to, uh, to read leadership and self-development, self-help books from what I will call people who in highly disciplined professions and what they will teach is the same thing. And they're mainly talking to young men. And that is that self-discipline is the first step to achieving anything. Now let's come back to Christianity, because I think that's just a human, a human trait. But I remember, and maybe you could expound on this a little bit, but I remember when you were doing ministry in college, and you, I think you're one of the best college disciplers I've ever seen. And that is just having relationship with uh, younger men. And it seems to me that one of the first things you did with them was to help them instill a sense of self-discipline, uh, a regularity of Bible study, a regularity. Uh, you might talk to that a little bit, because I don't think that message ever gets old for any of us. Well, I do think this is true for everybody, but it's especially true for 18, 19, 20-year-old guys that if you, if you want to have discipline in the things of God, but you don't have discipline anywhere else in your life, you should not be surprised that it doesn't just immediately pop up, you know, at 7 a.m. on a weekday, that you are highly disciplined and motivated and committed to reading your Bible or to going to Bible study or to pursuing the right things in your life, saying no when you need to say no, saying yes when you need to say yes. 
So I think one of the one of the great implications of this passage is discipline somewhere usually starts to infiltrate everywhere. So if you have the discipline to get up out of bed, which is an easy thing to discipline yourself to do uh, when you're a college student, is just set set a time to get up and and be faithful about it, or you know whatever it is, work out or something. As as long as you're building a pattern in your life of denying yourself for a greater purpose, that actually, that ability to be disciplined will extend to other areas of your life. And so I think one of the best things that you can do sometimes in discipleship is help, uh, especially a younger man, develop a little seed of discipline somewhere. It doesn't even have to be a real overtly godly purpose. Let's develop a little seed of discipline somewhere. And that seed is going to grow across your entire life to where you're doing the things that your future self is going to be glad that you were doing. I think that's a great uh, definition of discipline is do the things now that you're going to be glad that you did in hindsight. And that's certainly true in your spiritual life. Spiritual disciplines, uh, self-control, which is a fruit of the spirit, is doing the things that when you look back, you say, those are the godly things that I was called to do. And, and sometimes you have to build up a little disciplined stamina before you can jump into the deep end. Yeah, you know, in the secular world, uh, I've heard a speech by Admiral McRaven talking about uh, make your bed every morning. Mm-hmm. That's your idea, a seed of discipline. You know, Eugene Peterson has really taken young men really around the world by storm by simply calling them to be accountable, be responsible. And I think he's also said, you know, get up in the morning and make your bed. In other words, take some ownership, take some uh, discipline and responsibility in one area of your life. And I think that's that's a human trait that's so true in spiritual life as well. If you don't have to do it all at once, you just plant that seed. I think that's really a wise statement. You know, that discipline comes in handy for the things that Titus is describing because, you know, being a, a leader in the church is not always a fun thing to do, and it's not always an easy thing to do. You know, in chapter one, he talks about confronting false teaching, and it's not even there just false teaching, it's false behavior. So to the, the ability to stand on your feet and walk with people and uh, say no, the hardest word I think in the world right now to say is no. And that's going to happen if you're really trying to pursue godliness. That's going to have to happen in your own life. And as a spiritual leader, it's going to have to happen in conversations with others from time to time. And as you go through this, we see that recurring theme we talked about at the very beginning is that your right belief is going to lead to right action. And the way that you have understood what God's called you to do is going to lead you to act accordingly. We get a great summary of the gospel here in, in chapter 2 following on the passage we were just talking about, about holy living. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's as good a blend of doctrine and holiness as you'll find in the New Testament. And I want to point out textually, it's one of the only places, and there is there, there is a little bit of disagreement here grammatically, but I think the best reading is this is one of the only places where you see someone directly call Jesus God using this language uh, in all the New Testament. Of course, we believe that the New Testament teaches that, but it's not usually stated quite this way, where he says in verse 13, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
You know, that's grammatically explicit as well as doctrinally explicit. That's a great point. You know, just as a counterpoint to what you're saying there, that this idea of this is the gospel taking root and showing godliness, when he's confronting the false teachers or the really so much here, he doesn't use the term false teachers. He's just talking about people that are teaching doctrine that's not sound. It's not true. It's misleading. And probably the counterpoint is in chapter one, verse 16, he summarizes these teachers by saying they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works, by their Mm -hmm. deeds. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And so he's basically saying you, you will see the results of poor doctrine in disobedient behavior in some way or another. Yeah, I think that's a great phrase in there that you can demonstrate um, the things that you believe by the way that you act. And we right. again, we talked about that in our episode two weeks ago about holiness. But uh, this is just a reemphasis here in this letter. So he goes on in chapter three and he reiterates the tasks that he's given to Titus. He gives another great gospel summary here in verse five of chapter three. He saved us not because of righteous works done but according to his own mercy, the washing and regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit poured richly into us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, and and being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. For such a short letter, there's a lot of great little summaries like that. And so he charges Titus, basically, I want you to insist on the things that I have taught so that those who may believe in God will be careful to devote themselves to good works. And I think that's a a, a kind of a sounding note that he ends the letter on. But it's easy to skip sometimes the stuff at the end of these letters, but I just want to point out one thing here at the end of Titus. He says, I'm going to send either Artemis or Tychicus to you. And we see Tychicus is on the same track as Titus is throughout the uh, letters. He's delivering letters sometimes. He's with Paul. He's being sent around. And here he's going to come and cover... Uh, Titus's shift for a little bit while Titus comes back to where Paul is and do your best to come to me in in Nicopolis where I've decided to spend the winter. Um, Where do you think or how do you think this fits in? So if somebody's reading the the, um, Acts of the Apostles and then they say, how and when did this happen and what should we be expecting? You see him do the same thing with Timothy and we don't have a narrative to go with that either. You know, try to visit me um, bring the books, bring the parchment. How do we fit all this together? Yeah, that's a great question. Little detective work here, so uh, take this with a little grain of salt. But it, uh, the best evidence is that this does not look like it happened before the end of the Book of Acts. So at the end of the Book of Acts, you see Paul imprisoned. But then later, you see letters written from that imprisonment, and it does appear that he was released at that time. And so in the early 60s AD, it appears he was released from Rome and then went about going, and he's been in jail now, whether it's in Judea and then on on that voyage uh, to Rome. He's been in jail for several years. He's been out of circulation. So he appears then to be Uh, getting back into circulation with the churches and strengthening these churches. And it appears that all the things that we've been talking about are happening after that first imprisonment. What we know is that later in the 60s, he is rearrested, and the political situation is very different now. Nero 
the emperor who will kill himself in 68 AD, has decided a couple of years before that to blame a lot of his uh, what he's doing on the Christians. And so now the second time Paul gets arrested, you see the tone in the letter of 2 Timothy, which is probably written very close to his death in the latter part of the 60s, where it sounds like he knows he's going uh, to be killed. And it just, the fix is in, so to speak. It has nothing to do with whether he's innocent or guilty, but he's a Christian and he needs to be made an example of. So it appears to me that a lot of what's happening here in these churches, and I would suggest maybe the tail end of Titus, these things, this wintering in the Coplis is sometime in the mid 60s, maybe in between those imprisonments. And again, that's, I'm not dogmatic about that, but it sure seems like that's the way the evidence comes together. What do you think? Yeah, I think that makes the best sense of what we do know, because there's a lot we don't know about um, Paul's ministry in certain time periods. And I think that makes total sense. These are obviously late in his life. This one doesn't sound uh, as much like the end of 2 Timothy, where it sounds like the end is nigh. It sounds a lot more like earlier on and maybe a letter like uh, Colossians or Philippians or somewhere where we see it's, it's definitely in the end part of his life, but uh, not when the end is imminent. Yeah. You know, my final takeaway from this, by the way, is uh, a couple things. You see Artemis and Tychicus in here. And then he says, do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, because they're obviously on missions as well, evangelistic missions. And I just want to uh, encourage uh, all the lawyers out there that even lawyers can do God's work. Yeah, we have biblical uh, evidence for it here at the end of the book of I think Titus. you're going to get some emails on that. Sorry about that. But I just uh, I just think it's amazing when what you started this podcast with was how many people he has mm-hmm. influenced. And at the ends of these letters, you find out some of who those young men are, the young men and women. Yeah, that's one of the very cool things about Paul's ministry is the amount of connections and the amount of people that he influenced and um, believed in and touched and empowered uh, along the way of doing ministry. And, you know, he, he he wraps up this book in the same way that he begins it. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help the cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. You know, there there is a perfect relationship between believing the truth, believing that the gospel changes the world, and living with godly character, meeting urgent needs, not being unfruitful. And I think that's a great takeaway from the end of this letter. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.